once again with episode 63 of Wrestling with Theology. This time looking at the common ground we have with the Roman Catholics on what happens after we die. So we look at articles 11 and 12 of the Apostles' Creed as it is broken down in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Article 11, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Tertullian once wrote, the flesh is the hinge of salvation. We believe in God who is creator of the flesh. We believe in the word made flesh in order to redeem the flesh. We believe in the resurrection of the flesh, the fulfillment of both the creation and the redemption of the flesh. That's paragraph 1015 of the in brief of this article. And really, there's nothing we can say that is different between us. Lutherans and Catholics believe the same thing about the resurrection of the body. The body of everyone who has died will be resurrected on the last day. Those who have faith in Christ will rise to life everlasting with Jesus. The Catholic doctrine of purgatory comes into play here. You know, philosophical arguments can be made that the last day will end time. If this is so, the punishments of purgatory will be over. If this is not so, the punishments may continue into eternity until the time is over. However, these are philosophical arguments about something that doesn't exist. But we'll get to that in a bit. We move to Article 12 now. I believe in the life everlasting. The afterlife is where Lutherans and Catholics find their greatest practical distinctions and differences. For Roman Catholics, there are three destinations that a deceased soul may find themselves in after their death. Heaven, hell, and purgatory. Non-Roman Catholics have no place for purgatory. To begin the discussion of the life everlasting, we must look to Judgment Day. The Catechism treats this in two different sections. Paragraph 1020-1022 on the individual's particular judgment at death, and paragraphs 1038-1041 to on the final judgment. Lutherans and Roman Catholics have the same basic idea of death and judgment. Death is the conscious end of earthly life. But the Christian who unites his own death to that of Jesus views it as a step towards him and an entrance into everlasting life. Paragraph 1020. The Christian has been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection so that he can see his death as the prelude to his resurrection. Romans 6, 3-5. The Christian has no fear of death because it is just the gate to life everlasting. Although there is no fear of death and judgment, the Christian is still judged alongside the fallen world around him. Both will be judged as seen in the great kingdom parables and the gospels, especially the sheep and goats. Matthew 25:31-46. Therefore the church calls out to mankind the need for repentance. The evil that will be eternally condemned on judgment day is the central focus of our proclamation to the world around us. Not just that they are sinners, but that Jesus is here to save them from their sin and bring them to everlasting life. Having gone through Judgment Day, we look at the three destinations taught by the Catechism. First, we look at heaven, which is described in paragraphs 1023 to 1029. The Catechism defines heaven as the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longings, the state of supreme definitive happiness, in paragraph 1024. 
Questions can be asked about human longings and definitive happiness. Which longings are we elevating when relating to heaven? Because we are sinful by nature, Ephesians 2.3. All our longings are sinful, Romans 7.18. If we elevate these longings, we would turn heaven into a pit of hedonism. But we do not serve a hedonistic God. We serve a God of justice, righteousness, and holiness. If the catechism in meaning the deepest human longings of the new man in baptism, then we can see where these longings can be taken. Heaven will definitely be an extension of the Christian's glory and hope on earth to an exponential degree. However, this does not fully satisfy a proper biblical view of heaven. The deepest human longings revolve around acceptance. God created each of us to be in relationships. Relationships require a level of acceptance of one another's faults and abilities. Original sin has placed a hole in our soul that longs for complete and full acceptance from another. We cannot achieve this in this life. Not even couples who have been married 50 plus years can boast that each one completely and fully accepts the other without issue. As long as we are in this sinful world, we seek further acceptance than we currently have. In heaven, there will be complete and full acceptance for everyone. Because everyone who will be in heaven has been bought with Christ's shed blood on the cross. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7.14 Christ makes everyone pure and holy and thereby acceptable to him through his blood. He gives full and free salvation to all who believe in him. So what does the catechism mean by definitive happiness? Heaven will be a place of happiness. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, Revelation 7 17. God will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow, Jeremiah 31 13. Heaven will be a place of happiness that cannot be imagined in this life. It is real happiness, happiness that cannot be realized in this world. This happiness is the hope that keeps us going in this life as we struggle through the trials and tribulations of this life. The Catechism's second destination for the judged is where we find the most distance between Lutherans and Roman Catholics. Since this is a question that needs fleshed out for both sides, I'll read the entire section on purgatory in the Catechism, all three paragraphs. Paragraph 1030. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death they undergo purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Paragraph 1031. The Church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The Church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the Church, by reference to certain texts of Scripture, speaks of a cleansing fire. As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence, we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but certain others in the age to come. Paragraph 1032. This teaching is also based on the practice of prayer for the dead, already mentioned in sacred scripture. Therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead, that they might be delivered from their sin. 
From the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers and suffrage for them, above all the Eucharistic sacrifice, so that thus purified they may attain the beatific vision of God. The church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. Let us help and commemorate them. If Job's sons were purified by their father's sacrifice, why would we doubt that our offerings for the dead bring them some consolation? Let us not hesitate to help those who have died and to offer our prayers for them. The Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory is one of the major practical divisions between Roman Catholics and Lutherans, well, let's face it, between Roman Catholics and all other Christians. This distance can easily be seen in the way we talk around the celebration of All Saints Day and Christian funerals. When Lutherans celebrate All Saints Day or have funerals, we focus on the eternal rest the believers have entered through their faithful death in Christ. We toll the bell for each one because they have joined the innumerable multitude of Revelation 7, standing before God's throne in heaven. When Roman Catholics celebrate All Saints Day or have funerals, there is much discussion about hope. However, this is not biblical hope. This is the heartfelt wish that the deceased might someday enter heaven. Both contend with the profession of man as simul justus et peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner. The difference between the Roman and Lutheran positions regarding those who have died in the faith boils down to Christ's atoning sacrifice. The Catechism says, All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, paragraph 1030. What makes a person imperfectly purified? An imperfect sacrifice. But whose sacrifice purifies a person from sin? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus' sacrifice perfect or imperfect? The answer to this question has dire practical consequences. If Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins is imperfect, how can you ever be assured of getting into heaven? He is perfect God and perfect man. He is completely perfect. If his death is imperfect, then his salvation is imperfect. There would be no one in heaven because everyone, even the greatest saints in the Roman Catholic tradition, would still be in purgatory being purged of their remaining sins. There would be no real hope for a blessed eternity in heaven. If Jesus' sacrifice is perfect and complete, there is no need for a place to continue purging the sins that have been completely and perfectly removed. If his death is perfect and complete, his salvation is perfect and complete. You can't be somewhat saved or sort of saved. Either Christ has saved you or he hasn't. And this affects how you live your life. If you have no assurance of your salvation, you will be tempted to live your life with very little regard to fulfilling God's will, knowing that you will just work it off in purgatory after you die. But this is not how God expects his children to live. He expects them to live according to his Ten Commandments, even though we break them all the time. However, Jesus has assured us of our forgiveness through his death and resurrection. Therefore, we can live as his forgiven children and be assured of our eternity in heaven. Purgatory itself is a relatively modern doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church. It was primarily brought forward through the Council of Florence in 1439. If they have died repentant for their sins and having love of God, but have not made satisfaction for things they have done or omitted by fruits worthy of penance, 
then their souls after death are cleansed by the punishment of purgatory. Also, the suffrages of the faithful still living are efficacious in bringing them relief from such punishment, namely the sacrifice of the Mass, prayers, and almsgiving, and other works of piety, which, in accordance with the designation of the Church, are customarily offered by the faithful for each other. Purgatory's doctrine was further enhanced and then dogmatized in the Council of Trent in 1563. They cite a few scriptures to try to prove the existence of purgatory. 2 Maccabees 12, verses 43, 45, and 46. And making a gathering, the 12,000 drachmas of silver to Jerusalem for sacrifice to be offered for the sins of the dead, thinking well and religiously concerning the resurrection. And because he considered that the one who had fallen asleep with godliness had great grace laid upon them, it is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from sins. 1 Corinthians 3, 13-15. Every man's work shall be manifest, for the day of the Lord shall declare it, because it shall be revealed in fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If a man's work abide, which he is built upon thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work burn, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Matthew twelve thirty six. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall render an account for it in the day of judgment. These three scriptures speak of judgment and fire. But the councils of Florence and Trent took them out of the overall context of the Bible, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. In this proper context, all of the fire and judgment happened on Calvary. St. John the Baptizer said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1, 29. Jesus has taken all the fire and judgment away from those who believe in him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. Christians need not worry about spending time in purgatory. Christ suffered the torments of hell you deserve so that you might enjoy his blessedness and holiness. And speaking of hell, that's the third possible destination for the judged. It's described in paragraphs 1033 to 1037. There are five major items of interest in comparison between Lutherans and Roman Catholics in the doctrine of hell. Number one, the very first words about hell give us a moment to pause. We cannot be united with God unless we freely choose to love him. Paragraph 1033. While they will decry Pelagius and his heresy about the freedom of human will, there is still a great Pelagian tendency in Roman Catholic doctrine. While they don't go all in like the evangelicals with the idea that you have to give your heart to Jesus, they do stress the freedom of the human soul and powers to make proper decisions regarding salvation. This comes from their misunderstanding of original sin. While most of Pelagius' spiritual descendants strictly deny the doctrine of original sin, Catholics have a peculiar understanding of it. As a result of original sin, human nature is weakened in its powers, subject to ignorance, suffering, and the domination of death, and is inclined to sin. Paragraph 418 of the Catechism. Baptism destroys original sin, but leaves behind the inclination to sin. Baptism, by imparting the life of Christ's grace, erases original sin and turns the man back toward God, but the consequences for nature, weakened and inclined to evil, persist in man and summon him to spiritual battle. Paragraph 405. In the Roman Catholic understanding, 
A baptized Christian is without original sin and therefore has the ability to battle sin, death, and the devil by their own power. They will not be perfect in battle. They still have an inclination to sin, but their power is strengthened through the frequent reception of the sacraments, especially penance. This is the free choice that Christians must make in order to be saved from the torments of hell. But a human being can only choose evil, Genesis 6.5. Original sin does not get destroyed in baptism. Baptism applies Christ's blood to forgive original sin. The Christian must still battle the spiritual enemies of this world that seek to bring them down into sin. But Christians have a most powerful tool in times of temptation and discouragement. Prayer. We can pray to God about anything because he knows what we need from him before we do. Psalm 139 verse 4. Above all, we need to pray to God for the forgiveness of sins as we do in the Lord's Prayer. Number two, this leads us to the distinction between venial sins and mortal sins. To begin the distinction, every sin is equal. Every sin is damnable. Every sin is mortal. Every sin needs to be repented of. Repentance and confession bring about forgiveness of sin. Venial sins are seen in the Roman Catholic doctrine as light sins, such as telling a white lie or driving 57 in a 55 mile an hour speed limit. Mortal sins are those sins for which you have not repented. Without repentance, even the greatest Christian in outward acts will be in hell because he or she would not repent. Every sin is venial because it can be forgiven. Only blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, unbelief, is unforgivable. Matthew 12, 31. Point number three. Lutherans and Roman Catholics agree that hell is eternal. There is no getting out of hell without Christ's forgiveness of sins in this life. Punishment for the unrighteous and the unrepentant will be eternal. There will be no end to the punishment. This is what makes hell so terrifying. The punishment will continue without break forever and ever. It is the exact opposite of heaven, where the joy continues without break forever and ever. Number four, hell's existence and proclamation in God's word is a call for repentance and holy living. Hell is not just a scare tactic from God. Hell is the epitome of the fall into sin. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 17. Hell is pictured as the lake of fire that is the second and everlasting death. Revelation 2, 11, 20, verse 6 and 14, and chapter 21, verse 8. Hell's eternal fire is the heart of the issue in evangelism. While the gospel should predominate in our teaching, the gospel doesn't make sense without a concrete understanding of the consequences for breaking God's law. Point number five. No one is predestined to go to hell. Hell was not created for sinful people. Hell was created for the devil and his fallen angels. Matthew 25, 41. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Everyone has the opportunity to inherit heaven through repentance. The Catechism summarizes heaven in paragraphs 1042 to 1050 as it speaks of it as the coming kingdom of God for which we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Roman Catholics and Lutherans both believe that it will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. We have snippets of it here and now, but it will not be fully realized until that day. The snippets are given so that we might have hope. God graciously gives these snippets as reminders of his promises of salvation. This hope is not a wish, 
Hope is the solid foundation of the Christian life. It is possibly best summarized by Moses' words to the Israelites before they went into the Promised Land in Deuteronomy 8, 1-10. As God provided everything for the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings, He also provides everything needed for the Christian's life. The previous examples of His provisions give us the hope for future provision, ultimately happening in the new heavens and the new earth after Judgment Day. In paragraphs 1061 to 1065, pick up the final word of the creed. Amen. Amen is a very powerful word in the church. It is a word of certainty and faithfulness. So be it is the literal translation. The creed ends with amen to repeat the I believe at the beginning. Everything wrapped up between these two phrases encapsulates the bare minimum every Christian should know. As the Apostles' Creed was originally used for the sacrament of baptism, this minimum was the basis for entrance into the church. However, Christians should always seek to increase their knowledge and understanding of the faith they confess. And that is the point behind the Wrestling with Theology podcast, to help us grow, to help us wrestle with getting more and more understanding of what God has for us in the Bible. So this has been a lot today. This is a very weighty topic, a very basic concern for the commonality between Roman Catholics and their non-Roman Catholic neighbors and vice versa. So I hope this has given you some food for thought as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.